and it's a joy to be back here at the church here at Laramie Valley Chapel because you were part of our going to Bangladesh. You uh, encouraged us, you prayed for us, you uh, helped us out some financially, and I know that during our years in Bangladesh, 15 years there, many of you were praying for us and praying for the Lord to use us in ministry. So in many ways, you're part of our hearts and our lives and our ministries already. And whatever the Lord taught me in Bangladesh, and I believe he led us there because he needed to teach me a lot, uh, is what I'm trying to convey as I travel around the world today and helping pastoral uh, teaching centers, pastoral training centers, in uh, trying to help them go out and train pastors around the world that can serve churches, can plant churches, can lead churches to the glory of God. So thank you for being part of that in a, in a very real way, in a real fashion. I want to bring you greetings from our home church at Placerita Bible Church in Santa Clarita, California, and our pastor, uh, Adam Tyson, there in the word there today as well. And uh, it's, it's just a joy to be with God's people wherever you're at and to know that God is at work and to know that every one of you who have come to Christ have a story to tell about what Christ has done in your life and what changes have been made. And that brings us then to what we were talking about and what we're celebrating today. We're celebrating, this is Communion Sunday, so we're celebrating the Lord's table. As we do so, as we come as believers to do that together, uh, what does that mean to you? And how do you approach it yourselves? It's uh, one of those amazing things that we practice, and sometimes, unfortunately, we take it for granted. We just say, oh, well, today is Communion Sunday. And we go through the motions, and yet... There's such deep meaning here. It's one of those areas where we know that when we take the Lord's table today, we're doing something that the Lord Jesus himself established. He instituted this practice. He commanded it, just as certainly as he commanded the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew chapter 26, he commands the observance of the Lord's table. And then that's repeated by Luke in his gospel in chapter 22. And Paul, the apostle, picks it up and describes it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's, it's as though God doesn't want us to forget it. You know, when something occurs once in Scripture, we've got to pay attention. If it occurs twice in Scripture, we better really pay attention. If it's three times in Scripture, <laughs> we have no excuse for not paying attention. It tells us exactly how important and significant it is for us that God re would repeat it so often. So I would ask you, if you would first there, turn in your Bibles, whether it's on your cell phone or whether it's on a tablet or whether it's a uh, bound hard copy like I have up here. Yes, I do have a tablet up here too. So, and I have a cell phone in my pocket, so I have three swords. I'm ready. If one fails, I can always pick up the other. But uh, turn there to, to Matthew chapter 26, if you would. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. That makes it easy to remember, 26, 26. Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 26. And I want to read for us four verses here, verses 26 through 29. And you can follow along. Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. 
For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Father, as we approach your word this morning, and as we talk about this celebration, the Lord's table, that our Savior commanded us to observe, help us to understand, even more so, its significance, its importance, the teachings we gain from it, the things you want to remind us about through this observance. Thrill our hearts with it. Challenge our lives with it. Cause us to thoughtfully, meaningfully participate in biblical obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have two ordinances that God gave to the church. We call them ordinances. Some groups call them sacraments. And if you mean by sacrament just something that's commanded by God and is set apart, holy, that's one thing. But if you mean a sacrament by which some special grace is received by us when we partake, that's not what we mean. We're talking about simple obedience to what God has commanded. And the results of that obedience are to be obedient to the Lord for, for His glory, to glorify Him, to be pleasing to Him, and for us to learn from them and to use them as a means of teaching others. Those two ordinances, as we like to refer to them, are baptism and the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, we also call the Lord's Table. We also call it communion. Those three things refer to the exact same celebration, the same observance. For baptism, when we are baptized, we are baptized to identify ourselves with Jesus Christ. As new believers, we know that's our first step of obedience. The Great Commission is to go and to disciple all nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the new believer's first step of obedience. Christ commanded that we be baptized. And in that baptism, we are giving a public declaration of our new faith. We're giving a public testimony of saying, I am different now. I have a different life to live. I am in Christ Jesus. I belong to him. I'm a Christian. And we're buried symbolically in the water to symbolize that we're buried with him in his death. And we're raised out of that water symbolically to demonstrate that we are raised with him to receive and to have that life everlasting and to live it. Now, baptism doesn't give us that life. Baptism does not forgive us. Baptism does not wash away our sins. It's merely the public testimony that that has already happened at the time we placed our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the Lord's table <coughs> is something that we often observe and think primarily of the Lord's sacrifice, that he died on the cross for our sins. But there's more to it than that. We could say that baptism is our Godward obedience and that the Lord's table is our brotherward obedience. In other words, it's an obedience which involves us with the assembly of believers, the family of God. Now, that's not all it is. Don't get me wrong. I'm not making such a clear distinction there that one is for obeying God and one is just 
being obedient to our manward responsibilities because the Lord's table is far more than just that alone. But it's one of those aspects we often forget and I want to emphasize today. So I could begin by just asking some questions about the meaning of the Lord's table. We could ask, what does it declare? What do we declare when we partake of the ordinance here? We could ask, is it the Lord's death alone that we are observing and that we're talking about? Just his substitutionary sacrifice? We could also ask, is self-examination the major theme of our observing the Lord's table? That we examine ourselves to see whether we're worthy to partake as Paul exhorts us in 1 Corinthians 11. Is that all it is? Or is it about the Lord's future return? After all, we're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, that we're to do this until he comes. So there's a future look to it here. Is that all it is? Or we could ask, among many other questions, is it solely about the unity of the body of Christ, meaning the church? Now, what I'm going to suggest to you is that the Lord's table is all of those things, not just any single one, and perhaps even more, as we'll find out when we take a look at it. So you've got your Bible open there to Matthew chapter 26, and as we look at this, I want to gather the thoughts around two major themes, redemption and kingdom. Redemption, that's far more familiar to us than kingdom. Some of you may be sitting there and saying, well, what's this about the kingdom when we're talking about the Lord's table? But as we read the passage, the kingdom of God is mentioned, and we're going to see that that is there. But let's start with what we're more familiar with. Let's talk about redemption. What does the Lord's table teach us about Christ's work of redemption for us? Number one, notice the words here in Matthew 26 when Jesus is teaching his disciples how they are to observe the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. He, he talks there. He says, take, eat, this is my body in verse 26. And in verse 28, he says, this is my blood. Now, how can he have body and blood except he has first been incarnated? In other words, he had to become man before he could have a body to offer in sacrifice. So when we observe the Lord's table, we are assuming that he came and that he was born in the likeness and the, in the form of man, that that babe in that manger in Bethlehem, was a necessity. We're getting close to Christmas now, and we're not usually talking about things regarding Christmas each time we observe the Lord's table. But in reality, that is part of the truth that must be in our hearts and minds as we come to the table. He condescended to come to earth to take upon himself the form of a servant, the form of sinful flesh, the form of man, and to die on the cross for our sins. It begins with his incarnation. A step of obedience, and obedience even unto death is part of what we're observing here. Secondly, communion demands Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. There in verse 28, it says that his blood was poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Luke, in chapter 22, speaks of it as for you. This is my blood, which is for you. That is the substitution. He did it in our, in our place and for our benefit. So when we come to the Lord's table, we've got to realize that that substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ 
involves each and every one of us as recipients of that benefit. This is a personal observance. He did it for us. He did it for you. He did it for me. It's a substitutionary sacrifice. Third, communion indicates Christ's inauguration of the new covenant. Now, here in Matthew chapter 26, uh, Jesus says that it's the blood of the covenant there in verse 28. But if you look over at Luke chapter 22 and you see what he says in verse 20, he records it this way, and in the same way he, meaning Jesus, took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. A covenant is a special relationship that God has with his people. Our God is a God who desires to have a personal relationship with each one of his people. And we enter into a covenant relationship where he has made certain promises. And he's obligated himself to fulfill those things. And we enter into that relationship also obligated to fulfill our aspect in that role of a covenant relationship. And that is primarily to be obedient servants to Jesus Christ. And we're part of the new covenant that was established by his personal sacrifice that is better than the old covenant. Read the epistle to the Hebrews and read how much better it is. It is far beyond the old covenant. And it is a special relationship which we enjoy with Jesus Christ. And we can go further. Fourthly, communion identifies the believer as united to the body of Christ. Now, that's most clearly seen when we look at Paul's epistle to Corinthians, the first Corinthians, and we look there at chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. Now, the Lord's table is prescribed by Paul in chapter 11, verses 23 and following. But he's already talked about communion back in chapter 10, in verses 16 and 17, and he reveals something very important to us. He says there... <clears throat> is not the cup of blessing, in other words, the cup that we've given thanks for, which we bless, a sharing in the blood of Christ, is not the bread which we break, a sharing in the body of Christ. Since there is one bread, we who are many, don't you like that word many there, since Matthew says that he gave his blood for many, for the forgiveness of sins? It says, who are many are one body. One body. We are, for we all partake of the one bread. So we are that one. So when we observe the Lord's table, the bread not only symbolizes the physical body of Christ given as a sacrifice for our sins, it also visualizes and represents the spiritual body of Christ, the church, the assembly of believers who are one bread, one body. And that's why the Lord's table is so important presently in our relationship to one another because it involves our unity in that way. So that results in then that communion really requires us to live for and with one another in a fashion that is pleasing to God. And I'm going to come back to that because I've covered here the past, the incarnation of Christ, his obedience in his death on the cross of Calvary, his resurrection from the dead, and we're now going to turn and talk about the kingdom, and that's going to involve the future things that we observe here in the Lord's table. And then I'll come back to the present again, and we'll take a look at it. But the future kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, is also involved in the Lord's table. Notice in Matthew, 
chapter 26, verse 29, Jesus said, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, Luke is a little bit more specific in chapter 22. He speaks of the kingdom twice. He starts in verse 16 by saying, by, by recording for us here what Jesus said, for I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then verse 18, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes, which tells us the kingdom had not yet come. The kingdom was not there yet. Oh, Christ was there. Jesus was there. The kingdom's not there. And he says, the next time the kingdom is with you, I will be eating and drinking with you in the kingdom. Now, Luke, a few chapters before that in chapter 19, records that the disciples were having a discussion and they were asking Jesus, when is the kingdom going to come? <laughs> you know, it hasn't come yet. When is it going to come? And Jesus it responded by talk, giving a parable, a teaching. And he said there was a great man, a rich man, who owned vineyards, and he sent his son to the vineyard to represent his father and to carry on the business of the vineyard. But the keepers, those workers in the vineyard, rejected him and said, we will not have this man to reign over us. And they abused him and maltreated him. And he left to return to the far country from which he had come. What is that far country? Well, that one who is sent is the Son of God. And he's coming from heaven, from before the Father. And he comes to earth and he is rejected. He's rejected as king. He's rejected even as savior. And then he dies, is resurrected, returns to heaven, and one day he's going to return. And he says, the kingdom will come when I return with that kingdom. You see, when we see these things in the Lord's table and its explanation, it helps us to understand that unless we believe in a literal future kingdom, we cannot properly observe the Lord's table. Because it's not just Matthew that mentions the kingdom, Luke mentions the kingdom. And not only Matthew and Luke, but Paul in 1 Corinthians mentions the kingdom as part of this observance. And Luke goes on there in chapter 22, if you have your Bibles open there and can go down to it, if you look down at verse 28 in the same chapter, right after he gives the instruction for the Lord's table, Jesus says this in verse 28, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, how can that be done other than literally? How can that just be figurative? And in fact, it's a promise he's made. He's made a promise to his disciples that when I return with my kingdom, you're not only going to sit in that kingdom with me, and you're not only going to observe this celebration of the Passover meal with me, you're going to sit on thrones to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. If this is not going to happen literally in the future, then Jesus has broken his promises to his disciples. He's done nothing but to speak lies and untruths. There is a future. And this is where it touches upon us. 
He says he will eat it with us, with you. That means you and I are going to be there. But think of the saints that have already passed and that are gone and deceased. How will they be able to sit there and eat with him? The same as he will. Jesus will come and partake of that supper in his glorified body, having been resurrected from the dead and coming again in all of his glory. And all of those who are resurrected are going to sit there in their glorified bodies and celebrate with him. I would love it if someone would renew the painting of the Last Supper. We always look at it and we see the, all the disciples. There are the 12 disciples, including Judas, sitting there. And we see Jesus. And we see John leaning over on his breast. And uh, sometimes at a table and sometimes it's not. Depends on how accurate you're going to be. They didn't use a table, actually. They reclined on sitting on a mat on the ground, on the floor. And I'd like to see someone paint a picture that shows all the saints of all the ages and their glorified bodies as members of that table when Jesus sits and eats with us in the kingdom. You and I will have glorified bodies like unto his to be able to do that with him. And that is part of our hope. That's part of the promise. And that's part of observing the Lord's table. We're doing it to observe until he comes. And he will come. And when he comes, we will again sit with him and we will partake of that meal with him in our glorified bodies. I can't think of anything more glorious. It's, it's an amazing picture when you think about it. Now, having seen that, and having talked about what it means to us then as the future of the kingdom, that Jesus is coming again. We observe it until he comes. That it's the kingdom that's going to be on earth. It's here. He's going to come. He's going to come back here and observe it with us. And we're also looking here at our own resurrection and glorification in order for that to take place the way he describes it. That's what we're talking about when we come to the Lord's table. That's part of it. Let's come back to the present as we conclude. We've seen the past. He came. He was born of the virgin, lived upon this earth in the flesh, gave that body for us in substitutionary sacrifice, raised from the dead, went away to the far distant land, the distant country, heaven, and has promised to return. We've seen the future and all that involves. What about, how does that affect us now? Let's go back to that concept of unity, the being the one bread. Because when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we find something fascinating. Before Paul talks about the Lord's Supper, he's talking about the division in the church at Corinth. He says, I hear that divisions exist among you in verse 18. He goes down further and he's, he, he talks about how he said, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink or do you despise the church of God? He says, I'm concerned about your attitude toward one another, how you live with one another as the body of Christ, how you glorify Christ and what you do or what you don't do, whether you despise his body by how you live and shame those who have nothing, those poor in the congregation, that you treat them with shame. You're part of the same body. 
You are one in Christ. You ought to be loving one another, caring for one another, serving one another. You ought to be edifying one another, building one another up. You ought to be forgiving one another. Where is that? And what does he go to next? For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and he explains the Lord's table. This is one of the antidotes to the problems in the church is how we properly observe the Lord's table and understand its teachings. And he goes on there in verse 33, he says that we are to wait for one another. There's one of the one another's. To be patient, to be loving, to be compassionate, to be concerned, to be caring of one another. And then chapter 12, what does he do? Turns to the topic of spiritual gifts. Those gifts he has given to each one of us by which we serve one another in the body of Christ. That's the context of the Lord's table. We can't omit that. We can't focus only on the past, nor can we just add to it the future. We must also see the present reality and necessity of this ordinance and why it's so significant and so special to us. How are we doing, church? Are we observing it the right way? Are we taking care of things? Balthazar Hubmeyer was a, one of the Anabaptists who died for his faith, burned at the stake. His wife was drowned in the river just for believing the gospel of Jesus Christ and preaching it faithfully. He wrote more on the Lord's table and baptism than perhaps any other man in church history. It was his practice in his churches that when they finished observing the Lord's table, they didn't just dismiss and go home. He called one of his elders forward, and the elder would read Matthew chapter 18 and give a brief instruction on what it means to live with one another when there's problems. What do you do when a brother or sister in Christ has offended you? How do you handle that situation? How do you go to them and resolve it and be reconciled? Or if you have sinned against a brother or sister and you've broken that bond of fellowship, the unity of the body of Christ, and in some ways even despise the body of Christ, the church. How do you resolve that? What are the steps to be taken? Because we're to serve one another. And if you can't resolve it individually, then you ask the elders to get involved and to help to try to mediate and resolve the issues. And if they reach an impasse and it can't be done and there's no repentance, there's no giving of forgiveness, there's no confession, then church discipline is entered into. That's part of what's involved in the Lord's table. It reminds us of those responsibilities of how to live with one another in the body of Christ, caring for one another, loving one another, serving one another. That's purpose to do so, shall we? Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for your abundant goodness and mercy. You have given us this precious ordinance, this observance we call the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, communion, that we might be reminded of all of these precious truths, but not just to be reminded, but to be challenged to live them out in reality every day of our lives. Help us to do so today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.